Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Attractions Group Podcast. I'm Don Helbig alongside Ryan Sir, as always, and uh, it's episode number 41. If you're a theme park fan, if you have interest in working in the industry, we are certainly the podcast for you. Ryan, how's it going? Oh, another day in paradise. Again, we discussed this the last two weeks. It's becoming spring. It's getting warm out. The parks are opening. Best time of year, hands down. Hands down. And if you want to make your day even better, then you can follow us on YouTube by searching for the Attractions Group Podcast. Look for us on your favorite podcast apps, if you are so inclined, just by searching for the Attractions Group Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at attractions underscore GRP. And we are taking bids for sponsorship opportunities. So the best way to get a hold of us right now is just send us a DM on Twitter. Uh, we've got several different tiers available as to whatever you want to do, and we can make that happen. Don, I did that really fast. What's going on today? <laughs> you know, really excited about this episode, Ryan. You know, it's it's a guest that we've talked about having on the show uh, pretty much since we started, uh, you know, just conceptualizing doing this. And uh, it is Matt Heller. He is a theme park enthusiast, an author, performance optimist. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Don and Ryan. It's great to be here. I really appreciate it. Um, uh, I know you're, you're going to be asking me more about my background, so I'll just say I'm glad to be here. I'm a leadership coach and trainer and author and friend and excited to get uh, jumping into this. Well, that's fantastic. We're thrilled to have you here, Matt. Thank you for taking the time. It's a real honor. So uh, let's let's start from the beginning. Um, you are a performance optimist, so, so you're all about you know perfecting the system and encouraging leaders and so on. But let's start from the very beginning. How did you get involved in theme parks? Well, I listened to my mom. Um, I was uh, 18 and I didn't want to go back to the grocery store that I was working at in New Hampshire when I was um, kind of in between you know, years of college. And my mom said, Canopy Lake Park in Salem, New Hampshire was hiring. She said, I think that'd be a fun job. So I went down and I applied and I got hired that day, um, started as a ride operator. And that was kind of the start of the whole thing. Um, spent about 10 years at Canopy, kind of working my way up through the rides department. When I left there, I was the assistant rides manager, um, then got involved with, um, at the time it was Knott's Camp Snoopy in the Mall of America, which is now Nickelodeon Universe. And part of the reason that I wanted to get involved with Knott's Camp Snoopy was because at the time they were managed by Cedar Fair. And I really loved Cedar Point, you know, loved everything that Cedar Fair did. And that position at the Mall of America led to a position as an operations area manager at Valley Fair. And I stayed there for three years, um, then got the itch to do something a little bit, um, you know, maybe maybe elevated in position. And I actually took a general manager position at a small family entertainment center in Milford, Connecticut. Um, that led to my position at Universal. And then that led to me starting my own company in 2011. Matt, there are definitely some unique challenges that people face in the theme park industry as opposed to other industries. Uh, talk about that a little bit. Absolutely. Um, it's interesting because just in the last couple of weeks uh, with some of the clients I've worked with, the, the one of the biggest challenges that they've faced is the fact that they have frontline team members, you know, your 15, 16, 17 year old folks, all the way up through professionals, you know, people in marketing and per people in sales and finance. And it can be really tough from a senior leadership position to navigate all those different kinds of people, right? So in some businesses, you have the professional, right? In some businesses, you have more of the seasonal and frontline. And in our business, we have both and everything in between. And then we have all the people in the trades and, you know, electricians. And so when you think about a theme park like a Kings Island, you've literally got a city. And everybody in that city is trying to work toward the same goal. Well, when you think about that from a, a municipal point of view, not everybody works for the same company. You know, the people that are, are fixing the, the plumbing, you know, in, in the streets are not the same company that would be, you know, fixing the Internet or, um, you know, building the roads. And so, you know, you have very different companies that have to come together. But under a kind of a theme park or an attractions umbrella, you've got all those folks under one umbrella. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges. But I would also say, and I think both of you will, will probably agree with this, that working with the general public is also a big challenge, right? Because however big your facility is, 
you've got thousands of people potentially coming to your facility and they all have different expectations. They all want to do something a little different. They all want to experience something in their own way. And so from a, a design standpoint, we have to figure out how to accommodate all of them and then make sure that they are having a great time and that we're exceeding all those expectations that we're not even sure what they are sometimes. So I think those are some of the biggest unique challenges to our industry. Yeah, I, I, I would completely agree. That's well put. So in your book, All Clear, A Practical Guide to First-Time Leaders and the People Who Support Them, which is on screen right now for those of you who are audio listeners, uh, you make an interesting point. And, and this is something that I think everybody has experienced. You say that you know all the associates, they go into the break room and they say, our supervisor doesn't know what they're doing because they should be doing this, this, this. And you make the argument that it's just more complicated than that. And oftentimes leaders make decisions uh, that sometimes the associates don't understand on the surface level. So it takes a unique person to make these decisions. So just blatantly put, what makes a good leader? What makes a good person that could be put in this position and make these decisions? How long do you have? We have a... <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll distill it down to a couple of, couple of qualities. I think the best leaders that I've seen are curious right? They want to know what's going on. They, they have a, a natural questioning of why did that happen? One of the best leaders I worked for um, actually was at uh, Valley Fair. I'll, I'll say his name, Dave Vosapka. He's now at Great America, California's Great America. He was the director of operations and he was very good at being able to kind of just dive into things and be curious about how things work and what he can do to make things better. And I always thought that was an amazing quality. Um, I also think that being vulnerable is, is a key leadership quality that I don't think people talk enough about because you've got to be willing to take other people's ideas. You've got to be able to, to say when you've done something wrong, you've made a mistake. I think that's one thing that really builds trust. Um, but you've also got to be able to kind of turn uh, when it's necessary and say, okay, this is the decision we're making and we're going to go for it. Um, another leader I will, will call out was Amber Jackson uh, when I was working at Universal and she had taken over the training department and she was very empathetic to people. She was a great listener, but when a decision was made, she said, this is what we're going to do and this is the way we're going to move forward. And she was very, um, it was very inspirational to follow her because she literally boldly went where nowhere went no one had gone before, right? Like the Star Trek thing. I know it's Star Wars day because today is May 4th, but um, just, to, just to take the Star Trek piece of it. Um, and, and that was, it was very reassuring for us to follow where she was going because she laid out a very clear path for us. So I think being able to lay out a clear path, a clear vision is really critical. Being an excellent communicator, which includes listening, right? You have to be a great listener. Um, like I said, being curious, having a, um, a strong sort of moral compass, which is another thing that I talk about in the book, because you've got to have a strong um, uh, uh, you know, sense of right and wrong, but then also being able to have the strategic conversations that some people just don't want to have, um, not avoiding conflict, not avoiding you know, saying something that, yes, may not be what someone wants to hear, but it's what they need to hear. I think you wrap all those things up, and I'm sure I could go on for, for much longer, but those are the things that come to mind first when I think about a good leader. In the book, you also highlight the importance of frontline workers and how they shape the experience for guests. Um, how do you sell these associates on this idea? And how do you, would like a leader make sure that um, you know, they've made these associates know how important they are. Oh, that's such a great question, Don. Um, I think a lot of it comes back to communication again, but also listening, which is obviously part of communication, but listening to the associates idea. Um, I had one experience where I was uh, taking over as the general manager at the family entertainment center I told you about. And there was a gentleman there who had been there for a long time and he had an idea about, you know, painting one of the rooms. And like when I first got there, I was just trying to understand what the facility was all about. And I was like, you know, I, I, I didn't say I can't listen to these ideas, but I'm like, can you hold on to that for a little while until I, I kind of get my, my feet wet. And 
it was actually kind of demotivating for him because he, you know, just really wanted to share these ideas. And so finally I was to a, a point where I said, okay, give me, give me some of your ideas. Let's see if we can put those, some of those into practice. And we painted this room, which, you know, it cost us to, you know, however much it was for two gallons of paint and, you know, the time to do it. And man, he was, he was on board, you know, because we listened to him and we, we enacted one of his ideas. So I think that's one way is we, we mm -hmm. listen to them, but I think it's also about sharing with people what their impact is. So I talk to people a lot about feedback, right? Sharing the feedback, sharing what people have done well, what they can do better, you know, or how they can improve. And when it comes to people building confidence and saying that you as a frontline team member, you're 15, 16 years old, you don't have the same buy-in and input. I understand that as somebody who's worked for the company for 10 or 15 years, but we have to show them that they have a big impact. And I think you do that through feedback. So sharing with someone, Hey, Ryan, you did a great job when that guest was upset and you were able to calm them down. You were able to get them what they needed. And they went on and they had an amazing day at the park. When people hear that over and over again, they start to see that, oh, I'm part of this, right? I'm, I'm important. I, I should feel confident about what I'm doing. And I think so much of that is about building someone's confidence and, and building them up so that they see that they do have a positive impact. And I think too often, you know, as leaders, we get into this mode of we've got to fix things. And what that means is if someone's doing something wrong, Don, you're screwing up. I got to tell you that you're screwing up. And I don't take the time to tell Don what he's done right. Then I think we're degrading the amount of trust that we have. And we're also degrading that person's willingness to want to go above and beyond. Some valid points there. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's always gone through my head, like with any job that I've ever had where I'm like customer facing or whatever is, you know, a lot of like, especially like enthusiast types and stuff, see the PR guy as the face that runs the place, you know, your Tony Clark's formerly Don when he was in that position and so on. But for the average person, you know, that guy that's checking bars, he's speaking on behalf of the company and, and that job mm. is incredibly important, you know? So uh, I wish there was, I wish that I could have told you a way to communicate to 16 year old Ryan how important that was because I probably would have appreciated every job I had when I worked at McDonald's and, and you know, and so on. But that's neither here. Yeah, nor one of my, yeah, one of my favorite bosses that I had uh, throughout my years was someone that would always tell you four things you were doing extremely well. And then they would say, Oh, and by the way, you know, I'd like to see a little bit different here, you know? So that was the last thing they talked. It wasn't the first thing if they ever brought you into a room, it was the last thing they were going to mm. tell you. Yep. We, uh, at my place of employment, it's called a, uh, feedback sandwich, two good things for one bad thing. So that's, that's, a, that's a work environment thing, but yeah. So, um, but anyway, back to theme parks, cause that's what we're here for. Um, right on. <laughs> absolutely. Hey, um, you, a lot of people go not just into theme parks, but go into companies and so on, aspiring to be managers, inspiring to, to run the place someday. If you were going to give one bit of advice to anybody that's, wanting to go into leadership, what would it be on the ground level? Well, so first of all, that was my goal, right? You know, when I first got into the industry and I was working in operations before I got into human resources, and then I started my own company, my goal was to go as far as I thought I could possibly go, which I thought at the time was like, you know, running multiple theme parks. Um, so that's what I thought I wanted to do. So sometimes our path takes us in different directions and that's okay. Um, but if I were to give some, somebody a piece of advice, um, I think it would go back to those things that I just mentioned, being curious, always asking questions. Mm -hmm. You know, I think in so many um, instances, people are told, well, if you have questions, ask, but then they don't ask, right? For whatever reason. And I would just encourage people, whatever question comes in your mind, ask it. I would also say, you know, again, kind of going back to the moral compass. And this is something that just came up recently with another, with a coaching client that I have is to take a stance and take a risk as well, right? So, so stand up for what you believe in. If you believe that, you know, the, the training that you're doing is not effective, well, figure out a way to make it more effective and then present that to your, to your, uh, your bosses. Um, 
one thing I hear people saying a lot is that they're, they're waiting for permission. Well, if so-and-so says I can do that, then I'll do that. But as a leader, your job is to kind of be on the, on the forefront and be more proactive and say, this is what we want to do. And I understand from, you know, an inexperienced leader's perspective, we don't always know what that is. And we always don't know, um, you know, what those next steps are, which is totally understandable. Um, but if you find something that you have really um, got a lot of passion around and you can say, you know, I think it would be better if we did this from somebody who's been in a leader of leaders positions, I can tell you that that is usually if that leader of leaders is, is um, uh, transparent and if they're vulnerable, like we've said, they're, they're listening to you. If you're coming to them with ideas and not just problems, you're going to, um, you're going to build a lot of trust with that person, with that leader. Um, and they're going to look to you to solve other problems as well. So that's a long answer, but I would say be curious, ask questions, um, and always be willing to learn and try new things. Words to live by, right? Yeah, Matt, you emphasize the importance of building mutual trust with associates. Um, how do you go about that? So are you talking about like trust with between a leader and, a, and an associate or associate to associate? I'm talking about you're the leader. Like, how do you build trust with that associate? You know, so they, you can have conversations and things and they know that maybe it's going to stay just between the two of you or, um, you know, there's just no fear to have just open dialogue. Well, I think you hit on something really important there, Don, because you said if you're having a conversation with someone and they know it's going to stay between you, like being able to hold someone's confidence, I think is really important. Like if you say, you know, this conversation doesn't go any further than this and it really doesn't, then you've shown that person that you're trustworthy. And I always believe that, you know, the leader has to show that they're trustworthy before you can expect trust from someone else. And so one of the ways I think you do that is by listening. We've talked about that a little bit, you know, just being able to push everything else aside, turn your phone off. I, I walked into a, um, a park president's office one time and um, he was working on his laptop. And as soon as I walked in, he greeted me and he closed the lid of his laptop. And that sent a very clear message to me that he was ready to listen. And that, that immediately built some trust right? Because he's invested in this conversation. So I think if you can, if you can listen to people, if you can um, show that you're invested, if you can have their back, you know, how often do we hear that someone has gone through a situation, whether it's with a guest or a team member, and, you know, they felt like their leader didn't have their back, right? They didn't support them through that decision. That's not going to build trust. So part of this exercise is looking at what doesn't build trust. Um, but I also think, you know, following through on, um, on promises, right? You say you're going to do something and you do it. You say that, you know, if you're in charge of the schedule, Don, I know it's your sister's wedding, you know, next week on Thursday, and I'm going to make sure you have that day off, right? And the schedule comes out and you've got the day off and you're like, all right, good, right? But if now Don's got the opening shift, he's like, what happened? We talked about this. You said you were going to do this and then it didn't happen. I think that is an incredible way to degrade trust. Um, and one of the other things that I really focus on a lot is that balance of you're going to do things that people aren't necessarily going to like as a leader. But if you've built up enough trust to that point where, like you said, Don, you can have those, those um, candid conversations and you can tell people um, what, what it is that, that you need them to hear and they can trust that that you're going to listen to them when you can do that, then the times when you have to tell them you really need to improve on this behavior, or we really need you to step up here. You know, they may not like to hear that, but they know it's coming from a good place. Um, and I, I really, I, I equate this to um, a bank account, right? So you, you guys may have heard of the, the term, a trust bank or an emotional bank account where the things that you do, like admitting a mistake or supporting someone or having their back, those are all deposits in the trust bank. And we start to say, okay, Don's a guy that I can trust. Ryan's a guy that I can trust because of all these actions. And then if one thing, one little thing happens where things don't go as planned, I'm like, well, all right. Well, there's a lot of, a lot of goodwill already built up in the trust bank. But if there's a lot of those other things that degrade trust or haven't, haven't been built up or, you know, I, I see Don doing one thing and saying another, and he told this other person something else. And, you know, kind of was talking behind my back, then that's going to 
be a withdrawal from the trust bank and I'm not going to give you the benefit of the doubt. So when I think about where we are as, as human beings, you know, we're, we're also so driven by emotions and, and driven by how, how we interact with others and how they interact with us, that those relationships have to be built on trust. And as leaders, I think we can, we can focus on how to be strategic in that because we know what builds trust. We, we can think about any relationship we've ever been in and we know what's going to build trust. So we keep doing those things and that's going to build the trust bank so that when you do have to have the less pleasant conversations, that at least people know that you're coming from a good place. Yeah. I mean, trust is trust in a lot of cases. And it's, uh, I mean, how, why do your friends trust you for a lot of the same reasons that you listed, you know, and obviously you can't be a friend to everybody that's your subordinate, but you know, if you've got a lot of the same, you know, I, I trust my friends because I know that they have what's best for me and mine when they tell me something. I, I trust my friends because I know they're going to be there when they say they're going to be there. And if not, then they're not very good friends, you know. So you could you mm. could absolutely make that argument uh, about this, too. But just, you know, drawing the line with the personal side of friendship and so on. But uh, with that being said, so All Clear is not your only book. You also wrote a book called The Myth of Employee Burnout. Um, brief us on your thoughts on, on burnout. Why is it a myth and how do you combat the, the mental stigma of, I do this repeatedly. I can't do this anymore. I want to find something else. Absolutely. So this is something that, um, I've experienced in many, many different places that I've worked. I originally, when I first, um, came up with a, a, a training program around this, I called this the myth of mid-season burnout. Because what I had seen working at seasonal parks like Canopy and Valley Fair is that right around, you know, end of July, August, people were tuning out, right? And they were getting frustrated and they were getting tired. And and so what we what did we do then? We had a party, right? Let's have a party. Let's let's uh you know get people's spirits up. And that had a small little bump in the morale, but it never really um, never really had the effect that we wanted it to have. And, and so when I really started looking at it, I thought, well, this isn't just about the mid season slump, if you will, or mid season burnout, this happens everywhere. And when I got to universal, this is a year round facility, but people are still in some cases burned out. And I'm like, okay, well, we don't have the seasons. I mean, we have seasonality because the summer and spring break and, and, holiday time are very busy, but you didn't have, you know, the, the complete shutdown and then, you know, reopen. So it was a little bit of a different dynamic, but you still saw people that had this same, um, same effect, right? The same um, uh, burnout characteristics. And so what I really started looking at is what caused it, what, what made someone start to feel that way? Because I've hired a lot of people, I've interviewed a lot of people and, you know, started training them at the beginning of the season and they're bright eyed and bushy tailed, right? They're ready to go. The excitement of the season, the excitement of a new job. And then somewhere along the line, it fizzles out. And I really wanted to understand where that was. And the reason I call this a myth is because a myth is a false popular belief. So if everybody believes something, but it's still wrong, then it's a myth, right? It's still wrong. So I started looking at, okay, what is it that's really causing this? And to me, it was more of a sense of losing a, their, their identity or, or purpose within the organization or to, to Don's point, you know, they didn't see the impact of their actions. But what we blamed it on as leaders is the long hours, the heat, the crazy guests that you have to work with. That was the myth part, right? And what I, what I really found was that when we were blaming, let's just take the, the weather. When we're blaming the weather, we can't control that, right? So that would mean I can say it's the, it's the heat that's making people burn out. I can't fix that as a leader. So what does that mean? I don't need to change either, right? But what I really found was that it had much more to do with leadership. It had much more to do with communication and building trust. And yes, a leader can work on those things. So one of the things that's in the book is, is a graph of engagement. And you see that the leaders start off the, the season usually very high, and so do the team members. But as the leaders' engagement may wane a little bit or come down, so do the team members. And that's what I found I was doing, especially at a seasonal park early in my career. I get the park open, everybody's in their place, I'd look around, everybody's getting breaks, everything's good. 
I take my foot off the gas, right? And I'm not engaging with people as much. I'm not training. I'm not, um, you know, trying to tr provide feedback as much. And I didn't realize what an impact that was having on the team. And then by the time we get to, you know, late July, it was kind of too late because now, you know, people were thinking about, like, if I could just make it through August, I can make it to Labor Day, I can get to school. And now they got, they sort of have senioritis. So this whole concept of burnout, I said, it's not just a middle of the season phenomena, right? It's a year round issue that just happens to manifest itself. Like at a seasonal business that happens to manifest itself at a certain part in the season. And then I, again, sort of took a, a 30,000 foot view and I said, what's really impacting this? Well, it's everything, right? It's not just, you know, your leaders in the middle of the season. It's how we hire people. It's how we train people. It's who we're not, um, terminating, right? If you've got a team of 10 people and you've got two people that are just bringing the rest of the team down and they're, they're slogs, right? But you're not doing anything about it as a, as a leader. You're not giving them feedback. You're not, you know, maybe even saying, Hey, this is not the right position for you. Let's see if there's something else you should be doing, or maybe this isn't any, even the right company for you. If we're not doing that, the rest of those eight people are seeing that and they're starting to see, well, I'm putting all this effort in. What's the point if it's not going to be either recognized or if we're, you know, allowing those other people to do what they're doing. And so then the, the behaviors or the, the performance of those eight people come down. And one of the questions I ask a lot of leadership groups are, you know, if you had a group of 10 people, 10 people to run your ride, your food stand, whatever it is, and you had two people that were just not cutting the mustard, would you rather run short staffed with eight people that everybody was on board, they're engaged, they're enthused, they love what they're doing. Would you rather run with those eight or would you rather run with the 10 knowing that those other two are going to pull people down? And inevitably people say eight people. I'd rather run a little short staff knowing that everybody's on board rather than have those two people um, pull us down. But the reality is the execution of that is very different than what people say, because now you've got to have difficult conversations with people. Now you've got to, you know, hold people up to the standards and, and that can be a difficult place for leaders to be. So the, the kind of the, the premise is that the myth part is that we can't do anything about it, but we absolutely can. If we look at all these different places and influences that would impact someone's engagement over the course of time that they're working for you. Matt, here's a question that kind of plays off of what you're talking about with, you know, it being kind of a grind, you know, the hot days, long days, those kind of things. So say you have a, a team of 10. Would you rather have a team of 10 that's very talented to work with or a team of 10 that's very passionate about the industry to work with? Mm, that's such a great question. Can I do both? Probably yes. not. That's why you asked it. <laughs> you can't have both. You, you can kind of build your team around one or the other. Now, what's, you know, as a leader, you know, what is going to be better for you as a leader to know when you come in every day, you're going to get the optimal performance. My gut is going to say passion. And here's why, because with passion, you can build skill, right? And they've got the willingness potentially to build skill um, with talent. And you've seen this in sports, right? There's some talented, you know, uh, athletes out there who don't care about the, the outcome of the, of the team, they're just out for showing you their, their great talent. Right. And I think that that translates into business as well sometimes. So I would absolutely pick that team. That's got the passion. Um, now there's a, sometimes when that passion takes people in the wrong direction, but that's also when you have the conversation, you can bring them back, bring them right? back. Right. Yeah. You have to bring them back. Um, but I would rather have that team full of passionate individuals who are willing to do whatever it takes to be successful um, even if that takes a little bit longer for you to get them up to the, to the spot where that talented team might be. Um, I think passion wins every day. Yeah, I like that. Um, and also the thing that kind of popped in my mind is that people that are passionate to me, like in the scenario that I'm creating in my head right now are more apt to affect change. They're willing to make change. They're willing to go that extra mile to positively affect whether it's the guest experience or safety or whatever while talented people know their stuff but will they act on it you know that's that's a big mm -hmm. question all right so matt uh we, we've been talking about a lot of concepts you, you've obviously proven that you know there's there's a lot that goes into leadership there's a lot uh, that goes into the psychology behind it let's say that somebody's listening to uh 
this show, this our humble little program here, and they're like, I like what he has to say. What can he do for me? Tell us about your company and tell us about the process that you use, whether you engage with associates or leaders or whatever, uh, when somebody gives you gives Matt Heller the call saying, I need your help. Absolutely. Well, thank you for allowing me to plug. Um, my company is called Performance Optimist Consulting, and I really focus on leadership within the attractions industry. So I work with theme parks, zoos, aquariums, family entertainment centers, pretty much anything under the IAPA umbrella, um, any sort of attraction um, I love to work with. I have done work outside the industry, but I have to say, folks in the attractions world are my people. And, and so this goes back to, to Don's point about passion, right? I would much rather work with a group of passionate um, theme park or zoo people than I would with bankers. Not to, you know, impugn bankers who might be listening, but you know, this is, this is where my passion is. This is where I love to, to talk about these different things. Um, when I can be on a call with people from a zoo and they start talking about hoof stock and all these, you know, different animals and whatnot, I'm like, this is really cool. Um, or we talk about trim breaks or whatever it is, right? You're not going to get that in other industries. So I love to work with people that are passionate about what they do. Um, so what I get to do is really work with leaders to make sure that they've got the best skills, they've got the resources, they've got the, um, uh, they've got the, the attitude, right? To be the best leader that they can be and to do all the things that we've talked about so far, listening to your team, treating them with respect, building trust, all those things. Um, so my, my work tends to be with leaders throughout the industry. In fact, I have a, I have a quote on the back of my business card that says, um, training your frontline without training your leaders is like trying to um, set a land speed record on the bumper cars, mm. right? It's futile, right? So we need to make sure our leaders have the right skills before we, before we train our team members. So what I get to do is work with organizations that, you know, from, again, lots of different uh, areas within the industry that want to improve their leadership in one way, shape, or form. So what that might mean is doing a training session or training class that could be in person, that could be virtually. I do a lot of one-on-one -on -one, uh, coaching with people. I do a lot of group coaching. Um, I have something called POC University, Y-O-U University, and that's for leaders that want to kind of take their career, um, kind of take their career by the horns, if you will. And it's, it's a group of people that are from all over the industry coming together. And we do weekly check-ins, we do monthly coaching calls. Um, and it's just a great way to get outside information uh, because it can be great to work with people within your own industry, but it's also great to um, you know, interact with people from different facilities because they have different viewpoints and, and even somebody from a family entertainment center working with somebody from a cultural attraction and then a children's museum, you know, all them, uh, all, all those folks have similar challenges at times, but can approach it in very different ways. So that's another, another aspect of my business that I'm, that I'm, uh, running. And then, you know, some of my, my consulting, because I, I, try to work with people on more of an ongoing basis and not just kind of a do a one-off training here and there. Some of my consulting gets into organizational development. So, you know, are the right people in the right places? Do we have the right structure within our organization to be um, viable in the, in the years ahead? Is this family business, you know, operating the way it should? Is the, is the, the um, senior leadership, do they have the right skills to, you know, like we've talked about before, run all those different, aspects of a theme park or an attraction business. And so that's a, a bit of what I get to do as well. You know, just some great insights uh, that, uh, you know, you've shared here on the podcast. I don't know. It doesn't matter what your role is, what industry you're in. If you've been listening to this podcast, you certainly have some great takeaways. Uh, you know, got to shift gears a little bit now. You've, like I said, you're a big theme park guy. What's your favorite all-time roller coaster? Oh, goodness. So, the first one that pops into my head when everybody, whenever anybody asks me this question is Fury at Carowinds. It's fast. I'm getting a little older, so I don't like the, the head shaking as much, but I do like a coaster that will, so this is going to get a little dirty, nerdy, not dirty, nerdy. <laughs> nerdy. Um, <laughs> That's a good term. That's a good term. As, as we know, there are um, coasters out there that, you know, depending on where the shoulder restraints are, you might kind of bang your head between the, between the restraints. And I'm, 
getting to that age where that is not as attractive to me anymore. However, I do like a, a wooden coaster that's got some roughness to it, like Renegade at Valley Fair. Love that coaster. Um, but what I love about Fury is I love the speed. I love the smoothness. I love the airtime. Um, I did get to go on the Beast um, opening day at Kings Island this year, which was amazing. Um, one of my favorite wooden coasters uh, of all time. And um, so there's obviously, you know, as any enthusiast, there's there's different answers for different types of types of attractions. Um, but I would say, you know, Steel um, Steel Vengeance was in my mind uh, as I was thinking about, you know, you know, hybrids and things. But Fury, I think, is that that one that I could ride forever. Yeah, fantastic ride. Yep, I, I completely agree. Um, so Matt, you know, we we talked about your 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 company and. Uh, you have a podcast too. Um, it's in the lower left-hand corner of your screen. If you're watching on YouTube, when when Matt's on the screen, but uh, tell yeah. us where we can, where people can find more information, your social stuff like that. Sure. So the podcast is Attraction Pros, um, and there's a website for that, attractionpros.com, and that's a, a podcast that I've done since the end of 2017 with Josh Liebman. Um, and then my business, uh, my website is performanceoptimist.com. So you can find links to the podcast there. You can find links to my my business page on the Attraction Pros site. So they they feed each other. Um, but those are the two main areas. And then, you know, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, Facebook. Um, also for, for the listeners of this uh, podcast as well, I have a, um, a group within Facebook. It's a private group just for leaders in the attractions industry. And it's called All Clear. So I take that same title from my book. And it's really a spot for, you know, an online spot for leaders from any organization within the attractions world to come in and share and you know, um, get some input, ask a question, you know, those kind of things. So um, if you look for on Facebook, if you search for the all clear group, um, there are a couple of questions that you have to answer to get in uh, because we don't want just anybody in there. So if you're working in a theme park or any kind of attraction and you want to uh, want to join that uh, group, just uh, I'm the admin. So I will see your your um, answers and, and let you in. And um uh, I think I mentioned Instagram. I'm on there. I'm not on TikTok. Hmm. I watch some TikToks. You're but not I, on TikTok? Really? I, I, I don't mm. produce anything for TikTok. Okay. I've never made a TikTok in my life either. <laughs> I don't have my own TikTok. Let me oh, just put that my way. word. TikTok. Yeah. Anyway, um, thanks, Matt. Once again, uh, so your podcast, your website, all that stuff will be linked in the description of both YouTube and uh, in the podcast description. So if you guys want to learn more, pick up his book, his book, really, it's an easy read. You can learn a lot. I read this in a couple of days. So, uh, highly recommend it, Matt. Thank you so much for sharing your insight with us. Uh, our next segment is part, uh, that where I'm sure you've heard of it. It's called the pick six. And we, uh, we talk about the six biggest news stories in the past. I guess this time will be two weeks because we had a tech glitch last week, so we couldn't have you on, but the biggest news in the last two weeks in the amusement industry. You want to stick around and discuss this with us? Sure, I'm a game. I'm awesome. Game. Well, everybody, this is the segment that we all came to hear, and this is the pick six. All right. Don, story number uno. Well, a couple of weeks ago, there was a fire at Disneyland during the Fantasmic show. The dragon caught on fire. Matt, what were your thoughts when you heard that story? So whenever I hear that there's a fire or anything like that happens like that, the first thing I think of are the team members or in, in Disney's case, the cast members, right? You know, what are they going through? How are they dealing with this? Because what we see as guests and what we hear about in the media oftentimes is not exactly what happened there. Um, you know, my thought is that those things happen. And, and, and I'm probably looking at this in a different lens than, than the typical general public. But my thought is, you know, what happened? What went wrong? I'm sure this wasn't what they wanted to happen. Um, I saw some people calling for the end of the Fantasmic show. I'm like, this is probably not a reason to, to kill the whole show. Um, but I just wonder what was going on behind the scenes. How did this happen? I'm sure that there's people working feverishly to make sure it doesn't happen again. Um, and that's, that's one thing I think that's great about our industry is that we take those things very, very seriously. And if something like that happens, there's probably not a good chance that's going to happen again. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I feel the same way. And, and my perspective on this, and I was a volunteer fireman for like five years, 
like a couple decades ago. But the way that I see it, and I do not have any information beyond what was in the news articles, but it seems like the dragon caught fire. I'm actually surprised it doesn't happen more often than it does with how much they use pyrotechnics. So they have a pretty good track record on it. Uh, it caught fire. It burnt. The show stopped. To my knowledge, nobody got killed. Nobody got hurt. So it almost sounds like the tragedy went to plan. You know, if somebody had been hurt, it would be a completely different, you know, valuation of the situation, right? Yeah, just one of those freak things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. I mean, they've run thousands of thousands of shows without any issue. And that's what I'm saying, and they do pyro that's so far out of the scope. If you're chucking rocks in the air. You know, and you have a fire, like there's a problem. But if you're shooting fire out of a dragon and the dragon catches fire every couple of years, you're doing pretty well. You know, I mean, I hate to sound morbid about it, but it's true. Does anybody disagree with that? Anyway, story number two Big Bear Mountain finally, finally, finally is going to open May 12th. I am super excited. I am the biggest Dollywood fan. Matt, how often do you go to Dollywood? You've already mentioned it in the show. Um, not as often as I'd like, even though I live only about two hours from there, although I am drinking out of my Dollywood tumbler. I saw that earlier. <laughs> they gave me a couple years ago. Um, I love Dollywood. I, I can't wait for that. That coaster looks amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Don? Yeah, that coaster with that setting, I mean, it's just going to I mean, it's gonna be fantastic. Yeah, I agree. And, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things where when it was announced, everyone's like, oh, a family coaster. But then, I mean, I've seen it in person and it's so much taller. It seems so much taller than it really is because it sits on a mountain for, you know, for God's sake. And it's the videos make it look so much faster than you kind of have in your head what it's going to be. I think they have a slam dunk on their hands. It'd be hard to convince me otherwise, but we'll see May 12th. Don? Number three. Moving on to SeaWorld, Pipeline, the surf coaster. It's going to open on May 27th. It's got previews starting May 12th. This is the first of its kind. Just looking at the layout, the design, it's got all kinds of banks and curves as though you're really riding the waves. I'm pretty excited about this one. What are you guys' thoughts? Matt, why don't you go first? Sure, yeah, I'm, I'm with you, Don. Anything that kind of pushes the envelope of what coaster riding is, I'm, I'm all about. Um, I'm excited. I might actually be able to get down there because um, I live in North Carolina, but Josh, my my uh, Attraction Pros uh, podcast partner, and I might be doing something in Orlando around that time. So we might get over there to, to ride that. And it's super exciting. So, you know, whenever you have a new concept like that, I think it's really interesting um, to, you know, ride the rails in a different way. You know, you might you might say it that way. So I'm I'm excited about it. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and for me, it's like uh, until a couple years ago, I assumed that the stand-up coaster was dead and gone, and very few would miss it. But now we got a new take on it, uh, and it could be a completely different experience. So, I, I more than anything, I'm very curious as to how the sensation and stuff is going to be different. And I'm I'm pretty excited. I mean, B and M doesn't roll the dice too much, and they're doing it with a brand new concept this time. And I think it's really the first one since the wing coaster that they've come up with a completely original design. So we'll see. I, I think it looks awesome personally. Yeah, yeah. Looking forward to it. Awesome. All right. Um, I guess the next one's me number four. So wildcats revenge, the trains have been revealed for Hershey park. Um, yeah. RMC took the ride that everybody asked them to dismantle and redo and they're dismantling it and redoing it. Thanks RMC. <laughs> so I never really got to ride the original Wildcat. Um, Don, you've expressed your opinion on it, but Matt, have you ridden the original Wildcat? And what were your thoughts on that, especially in the later years? I rode it last year, uh, actually, and I was so excited to hear that it was getting uh, refurbished because it was rough. Um, I think before that, the roughest coaster I had been on was... Um, the Rattler, which is now the Iron Rattler yeah. uh, at Fiesta, Texas. Um, that was a, um, a good chiropractic adjustment, if you will. Um, and um, to me, the, uh, uh, the Wildcat was, was, was rough to the point of not being fun. Yeah, and that's a problem. Yeah, that's how yeah. it was near the end. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I was very excited to hear that they were that that was happening. Yeah, yeah. The trains look great though with that that logo and yeah, the colors, the black, the charcoal, the silver. You know, with the big wildcat on the front. I mean, I think the trains look amazing. Yeah, I mean, we all saw them at IAPA, and they 
We did. Yeah, I, they must have stolen Gravity Group's uh, fiberglass guy. Because remember, Gravity Group did some awesome front ends of, of cars. And they probably still are. But now RMC's in there making like full-fledged wildcats on the fronts of the cars. And, you know, Air Force One looks really, really cool and stuff. So I, I'm, I'm excited for that. So that'll be really cool. All right, story number five. Uh, this one caught my attention for a few different reasons. But Walt Disney World, Animal Kingdom, they had a time capsule. Uh, that they dug up uh, 25 year anniversary of it you know it had letter letters from the 1998 opening day cast old photos newspaper clippings uh, mementos um, you know I thought this was really cool you know to do that to dig it up uh, but the first thing that came to mind for me you know I, I knew it was 25 but it didn't seem like 25 because and it might just be me but when I go to uh, Walt Disney World that always felt like the older park of the other ones you know and and but, uh, you know, just kind of a fun thing. Yeah. Matt, what are your thoughts? Matt, what do you think? Well, um, I remember when they were doing the, um, uh, the marketing for Animal Kingdom and they said, not a zoo, right? It's not a zoo. Um, so interesting to hear about that, you know, the, you know, now 25 years later. Um, and I'm, I'm a sucker for all that kind of history stuff in, in theme parks. I mean, just look mm -hmm. behind me. If you're watching on YouTube, like mm -hmm. the things I can find like on eBay and antique stores, I just love all that stuff. So um, I would have loved to have, have been able to dig through that, that time capsule to see all that stuff from, from back in the day. Yeah. All the construction photos. I mean, that'd be yeah. awesome to see. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I, I think time capsules are fascinating. I I'm feeling old that this one was buried and then uprooted within my lifetime <laughs> you guys have probably experienced that a little bit before me but not much um but uh yeah i think it's really cool and uh they did it on earth day which was uh you know animal kingdom's opening day I, I, one of the coolest things that they do is when they have a special day they do special things like as in earth day which was opening day for animal kingdom they had special merchandise uh, a couple friends of mine went down there and they bought about 15 different pins and all the mm -hmm. pins were like they weren't phoned in they were great looking pins they had special park maps and stuff really in a way that only disney could do you know all right now we need to have a moment of silence because we in the past week and i'm going to try not to cry but we lost a coaster that i really enjoyed but everybody else hated so that made me special and we're talking about T3, Terror to the Third Power Degree, whatever they market it as, at Kentucky Kingdom. So T3 was a Vekoma SLC, but it didn't have SLC trains. I, do either of you remember the manufacturer? I can look it up real quick. Kumbach. Kumbach was they, they, from the ashes of one of the Vekoma uh, bankruptcies. Kumbach came and they, they built these trains that came down and they had kind of like copperhead strike trains where it was over the shoulders but it sat on your lap. Uh, so it was a lap bar. Um, now the biggest complaint against it was that um, it would squeeze your legs to the point where like you would reduce blood flow and stuff, but I could get past that. And I thought that T3 was an awesome ride. Once it got the new trains, Matt, yes or no on T3. I'm going to have to abstain from that vote. Cause I never wrote it. Um, the couple times I've been to Kentucky kingdom, it wasn't operating. So, um, I, I don't, I won't say yes or no, just cause I hadn't written it, written it. Fair enough, Don. You know, Ryan, I'm kind of in your camp where I didn't mind it. I thought it was okay. You know, if, if I was going to Kentucky kingdom, I was certainly going to ride it if it was operating. Uh, but you know, last week it was, you know, a very sad day on two counts. You know, we lost T3 and we also lost Jerry Springer. So it was a, it was a bad day. Yeah, that was a rough day, especially for people in this market, you know, between T3 and Jerry Springer. Of course, everybody knew who, T who Jerry Springer was, but nobody knew what T3 was because, you know, one was on TV constantly. The other one was a roller coaster that was 100 miles away from where I live, let alone where you guys live. But, um, yeah, it's it's always sad when a coaster gets shut down. I, I didn't make it to Kentucky Kingdom last year, but my understanding was that uh, it was SBNO for the entire year. Um, mm -hmm. which that ride is, is no stranger to, because when Ed Hart repurchased the park back in 2009 ish, don't fact check me on that. I'm not sure of the year, but I, I think it sat, it sat SVNO for a, a year or two, you know, because it needed whatever work and a lot of work. Yeah. So they, when it sat vacant again, this past year, I didn't think anything of it. 
but that also frees up a lot of land because you've got T3, you've got the water coaster that hasn't opened in a couple of years, and you've got that large venue that they tried to use with like a bird show or something, but then didn't reuse after that. So with that being said, of course, everybody's head's going to what kind of roller coaster are they going to add? I almost hope they don't. I hope they add a new section, like a midway, and they try to have that look and feel of Dollywood slash Silver Dollar City where they have shops and experiences and stuff like that with some rides peppered in there. But that park didn't need T3, so it doesn't eminently need to replace it. Does anybody object to that statement? No, I don't think you have to replace mm -hmm. it. No. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Cool. But Ryan, you and I might be the only two then that are gonna gonna miss it because I think we seem to both enjoy it. We're gonna be the only people at its funeral, you know. You know, and it's That's it's right. father T two and it's great granddad T one. They're gonna remember that that our faces were there at the funeral. <laughs> That's right. Awesome. Cool. Cool. Well, man, that went fast, didn't it? That that was a that was a heck of a show. Matt, thank you so much for being on. For those of you who were listening to the end, for a little explanation, last week. Matt was going to be on the show. Matt was sitting at home with me sending him Facebook messages like, dude, I'm so sorry. I can't get this to work. I can't get the video to come into the software. It was Microsoft's fault. It wasn't Ryan's fault. It wasn't Don's or it wasn't Matt's fault. It was, what's his name? Steve Ballmer's fault. But fortunately, <laughs> uh, a couple of days later, they came up with a workaround. That's why we're able to have a video now. So Matt, once again, thank you so much for your patience. We really appreciate it. Thank you for sharing your insight. Um, once again, do you want to tell us your, your websites or where they can find you as well as your podcast? Sure. So performanceoptimist.com, all one word, performanceoptimist.com is my company website. And then the podcast is at attractionpros.com, similar to you on all the uh, um, podcast platforms, including YouTube. Awesome. Well, once again, Matt, thank you so much. Don, do you have any final words of wisdom you want to share with us? You know, just like a lot of our episodes, Ryan, you know, I think we learned a lot and grew as people. I think we're better people now. Matt, do you have any final words of wisdom? I just appreciate the opportunity and the um, uh, the fact that, you know, Don has been on the Attraction Pros podcast. So if you haven't checked that out for any listeners of this podcast, it's a great crossover. Um, Don probably remembers when like the cast of Happy Days went to Laverne and Shirley and back and forth. So oh, yeah. it kind of, kind of reminds <laughs> me of that. Um but uh, no, this this has been great. I love uh, talking about leadership and nerding out on uh, theme parks. Awesome. I would think it would be more like when Steve Urkel was on Full House than Laverne and Shirley was on Happy Days. <laughs> but of course, again, I'm, I'm a, a couple years younger than you guys. So, you know, the references aren't lost to me. Matt, thank you once again. Don, thanks for being the co-host. We'll see you guys yeah. next week. We've got a very, very special episode next week. And we'll learn about it later. Thanks, everyone.